when someone comes in and they they bring an alternative view on things that you may not agree with it's not don't tell them to shut up like listen to them and it's okay to debate them and say i don't agree in any company friction is actually good because it makes you really evaluate what's going on that's good and what's going on that's not good and i think if you if you just say i know all and you cannot question me and your company's never going to get better this is reveal the revenue intelligence podcast here to help go to market leaders do one thing stop guessing if you're ready to unlock reality and reach your full potential then this show is for you i'm danny wasserman coming to you from the gong studios howdy 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 danny the rev wasserman back again guess who's back back again danny's back tell a friend yes this is a absolutely earth-shattering week for Reveal as we have the chance to explore, unpack, uncover the secrets that are the underpinnings to someone incredibly special who has defied all statistics as far as remaining at the helm of one of the hottest, most recognized global brands in the tech space today with a decade as the CRO, when typically CRO's average tenure is about 18 months. Here's someone who, even before assuming the reins of this monolithic powerhouse, which I'll tell you momentarily, had unbelievable stints at other recognizable tech players that subsequently went on to influence how he leads large global organizations today. Who are we talking about? We're talking about the CRO of Snowflake, Chris Degnan, who is in the house and who could not have been a cooler, more humble, but real dude. He talks about in this episode the importance of preserving basic humanity. And within humanity, he talks about both vulnerability, honesty, as well as curiosity with people who are your peers when you're the CRO, but also people up and down the stack, inside and out, who are bound to want to give you feedback. What he talks about in the pursuit of trying to find truth inside and outside the organization, that conflict in the workplace, when you're having hard discussions, it can be constructive. So reversing the stigma that conflict is destructive. In fact, he talks about this idea of positive conflict, where you're not urging someone to shut up when you disagree with them. In fact, you're more curiously unpacking the position that they're presenting to you. Along the way, Chris talks a lot about how through his own personal experience, how that's cultivated a sense of skepticism. I, well, I wouldn't say paranoia, certainly enough doubt that makes him an incredibly discerning leader when he examines every fact with a fine-tooth comb. You don't want to hear from me. You want to hear from Chris. So it's time for me to put a cork in it and tell that DJ to spin that. Howdy, howdy, howdy. Back in the Gong Studios for an especially unique episode of Reveal. Danny the Rev Wasserman here, joined by someone who needs no introduction, but nonetheless deserves one, with just shy of a decade working at EMC, cutting his teeth in sales, working his way up with a quick stopover at Avexa before becoming employee 16 at none other than this rinky-dink startup that no one's ever heard of. Of course, you know I'm joking. No, it has gone on to make history absolutely make a dent in the technology universe. We're talking to the guy who's defied statistical odds and probabilities when the average tenure I just looked for a CRO is 18 months. He has crossed the threshold on a decade at the helm of the revenue organizations at Snowflake. Of course, you've connected the dots by this point. We're talking to Chris Degnan. Chris, welcome to Reveal. Danny, thanks. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. 
All right, so there's no shortage of content online with your name tied to it, Chris, whether it's interviews or publications about your philosophy. And where I want to go, and I owe a big thanks to Jubin over at Kleiner Perkins and the Grit Podcast, because he and you, in a very candid moment, surfaced a lot about your feelings of anxiety and paranoia. And I want to start the conversation because in a world where we have to boil down to find yourself in a binary outcome between being someone who loves to win or hates to lose, how would you describe yourself? I, I hate to lose. Um, I am, uh, you know, celebrating wins is is fine. Um, but it, what gets me is losing. And so, uh, it, you know, I think one of the earliest hires um, that I made at Snowflake or one of my early hires at Snowflake, you know, it was his first job at a, at a college. He said to me, sales is like this, like the, it's like a hamster wheel um, in that, you know, there's, there's never an end. And I think um, I don't like missing a quarter. I don't like missing, you know, a forecast. I don't like losing a deal. And, and I think those are the things that, that drive me not necessarily, Hey, slam, you know, slam dunk. We had a great year. Who cares? Like no one cares. Uh, they, they're like on to the next. So that's kind of how I, how I operate. But I, I do remind myself that, you know, uh, celebrating the people that work for me and the wins and the hard work they've done is super important. So I make sure we do that. And thinking about your, insatiable appetite for what is next. There's an absence inherently in, dare I say, satisfaction. And I wonder when you think about, I'm, I'm reading this book called The Happiness Advantage by Sean Acor. And he talks about societally, we push the goalposts further and further back so that after we reach, I mean, in your interview with Jubin, you even talk about, hey, we closed a legacy, a historic crowning achievement, $100 million deal. And the next day we're like, well, what's next? Yeah. Can we do 110? If we keep pushing the goalposts further and further back, are we ever allowed to exist in the present with satisfaction or is that dangerous? For me, it's dangerous. And I, I love the quote and I love the movie uh, Fer Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And I think, yeah. you know, Fer Ferris in that in that movie says, if you don't stop and, you know, t life moves pretty fast. So you got to stop and take uh, a look around. And that's the, in, in essence what he says. And. And, and, and it's and I try to remind myself to do that because, um, you know, a lot of the fun that that um, building a company is you're in the moment, you're, you're building it while you you want to get to that next thing, whatever that next thing is. You want to buy the next car. You want to, you know, get that next house. You want to do whatever. But, you know, so much of the fun of building a company is you're in the middle of it and you go back and you look back in, in time. And I think about this all the time. You know, I, I just pulled up my first uh, QBR deck, the very first one I had at Snowflake. And it's really awesome to go back and think about <laughs> just that on like how desperate we were. So the desperation matters. Having a little bit of desperation matters. But those are things that you get, you, you know, that are, you get nostalgic about for sure. When we think about Ferris Bueller's philosophy and your boss's, you know, unapologetically, dare I even say skeptical outlook on life. What are the ways that you balance what is maybe a healthy dose of skepticism to keep you hungry, to keep you humble? And when do you also have someone or something internally and intrinsically that says, I have over-indexed into a degree of paranoia where it is either unhealthy for me or even it is causing an unhealthy degree of friction and pushback because it manifests itself in distrust towards the people that work for me. I think, <clears throat> I, 
I think trying to be as honest as you can with, with everyone around you. Um, you know, I think if there's one constant that, that, that is, um, been at my tenure at Snowflake has been changed. So okay. 10 years in and I'm still grinding and I'm still changing and I'm still, you know, doing reorganization constantly. And I, it's not because I want to be, um, uh, you know, mean and make people's lives different, difficult because change is hard on, on everybody. Um, yeah. but it's, if you, if you're as, as, as Frank Slootman likes to say, if you're intellectually honest with yourself around what's the right thing to do for the customer, what's the right thing to do for the company, then, you know, the rest will fall into place. And that's kind of how I, I, you know, that's one of the learning moments for me has been, I do what's right, you know, for our customers, I do what's right for uh, the company and, and, and of course our employees, but, but, you know, making Snowflake successful is going to be what's good for, you know, our employees and our investors. You've talked a lot about you examining numbers. There was this anecdote that you shared in Grit where at one point, perhaps you got a little too comfortable in the momentum that you had cultivated and built at Snowflake and weren't scrutinizing the numbers enough. And numbers can tell whatever story you want. And you actually went back sort of in hindsight and think, oh man, I really should have double clicked into those numbers. So I'd love for you to explain your determination of when am I bringing a healthy dose of skepticism to anything I see versus when does that actually become, dare I even say pessimism? And are those one and the same or is pessimism just an over rotation into that healthy dose of skepticism amidst your success? Well, <clears throat> I think that the, the crazy part of a successful company um, like Snowflake is, you know, the, the first thing is to remind yourself that Snowflake's not successful because of you. And I think there's a lot of people that, that, you know, are part of a successful company yeah, and think the company is successful because of them. You're part of that rocket ship, but yeah. you're not the rocket ship. And I think it's important for you to remind yourself of that. Um, and I think if you go into that and evaluate how, how are we growing, what am I doing and what can I do better? So, so yeah, there's, there's pessimism because, you know, there are people that have been at Snowflake on the, on the sales side that have hit their numbers that, that we've had to let go because mm -hmm. they've, they've, their egos have gotten too big or they're just not doing the job as they need to do the job. And, and I think you always have to evaluate, is it because of the person or is it because of the the product is it because of the market, whatever it is. And, and I think if you're, if, and again, going back to the intellectually honest conversation, if you, if you really evaluate that on a regular basis and say, you know, uh, you know, Frank always likes to say, there's a lot of people that, that have put on their LinkedIn profiles, X snowflake to get, you know, to get the next job. And, and, uh, you know, because they were here, maybe they were part of a good thing. Maybe they weren't. And, and I think, you know, the way I view it is I'm, I'm very intellectually honest with myself around, am I doing the right things? Where have I screwed up? And there's a lot of things that I have screwed up on, on my journey and um, continuing to try to learn and, and, and figure out where I can improve. You're talking a lot about this notion of honesty, honesty with introspection, examining, am I, Chris, still doing what I need to do? And then having those same honest conversations with the people on your teams. And I... I really want to double click into this idea of truth tellers because you talk about it a lot in previous interviews, surrounding yourself with people who, in spite of reporting up to you, who may be managing up to you, feel some reticence to be truth tellers because out of fear of backlash or political repercussions, 
They don't summon the courage to tell you maybe what you need to hear, what you want to hear, which is the truth. So talk to us a little bit about how you as a leader engender and broker that degree of safety and honesty with people. And also, if you could speak to the people who have yet to achieve your level of authority, how can they determine what is that litmus test when they can be really honest with you versus when is it a time to disagree, but commit to what someone like Chris is going to decide to do? Yeah, look, I think if you if you tell everyone their ideas are stupid, then you're definitely not going to you know elicit you know feedback. So so first of all, I think you have to be very open to getting feedback from anyone in the company, whether it's a, a you know a new hire. How, how was your new hire process? Like just asking that to a customer. What was it like becoming a customer? What was the sales cycle like? Um, what is, what did you like? What didn't you like? Um, and I think if you, if you kind of come with the approach that you don't know all, um, and you're open to feedback and you take notes and you act upon those things, those are things that like are, are invaluable. I think when, when I talk to people, it's, it's hard. I I get it that, um, stuff like this big company and they don't want to screw up their job. They just want (laughs) to, they want to do their job and get paid and, and, and have a happy life. I, you know, my my job is really um, to to find out where there are holes, and sometimes when you open something up, like you say, "Oh, there's an issue here," then you d- you dive three layers deep. You think, "Oh, like oh my gosh, this has been going on for a while." So, you know, inevitably, um, you have to have you have to have trusting relationships with people that don't work directly for you, that aren't in your organization, that will tell you the truth. So you have to make the effort to you know, have one-on-ones with people that, that again, either A, aren't working for you at all, or B, are not direct reports to you and, mm-hmm. and figure out who's, who's willing to tell you the truth, who has the guts. And then when they tell you something, you also have to then validate it. I, I always say there's three sides to every story. There's, you know, the person who's telling the story, the, there's, a, there's someone else's side and there's the truth. And sometimes it's in the middle. So. And- In a previous interview, you've talked about, you know, you and Frank had whittled down the number of people that were in attendance in those staff meetings to the folks that would have the courage to be truthful. And at times, those discussions got contentious, not disrespectful, but that there was conflict because people strongly and passionately feel their side is better or worse than the other. And help us understand what are ways that you maintain that degree of candor and honesty and even at times when conflict arises, how you still leave that meeting and can hug it out, can slap high fives and not harbor any grudges. You know, the, the way I the way I, I look at it is, you know, um, my my brother and I, he's, he's four years younger and we can say and, and nasty things to us, each other in the moment. But at the end of the day, we get it all out and then we're we're, we're brothers and, and we're still together. And and I think that's the way that you know, you hope that people operate and, and when someone comes in and they, they bring an alternative view on things um, that you may not agree with, it's not, don't tell them to shut up, like listen to them and it's okay to debate them and say, I don't agree. Um, And, and, and you can get into a disagreement. You know, um, my, my daughters always tell me a funny story is so our, our, our first real CEO is Bob Muglia and Bob's this very, uh, high intensity, uh, emotional Italian dude. And, and I'm a, you know, leave it where, where my emotions on the sleeves human. And, 
Bob and I were, were fighting and they're like, dad, are you going to get fired? I'm like, no, nope, because Bob and I would hug it out after and uh, come to a, an agreement. That's how we kind of got friction was okay. And I think um, in any company, friction is actually good uh, because mm-hmm. it makes you really evaluate what's going on that's good and what's going on that's not good. And I think if you, if you just say, I know all and you cannot question me, then your company's never going to get better. And that's that's the thing that you have to you have to let your ego down and say, I don't know all. And and by the way, I encourage people to tell me stuff. But again, it it's hard to get the, those people to tell you the truth all the time. Any successful organization needs an open, feedback friendly culture. Chris Degnan firmly believes that leaders should value and act on all feedback, regardless of where it originates. In a healthy business environment, openness to intellectual disagreement and good debate, well, it drives improvement. He's really onto something because, in fact, Harvard Business Review found that 85% of employees say that they respect and trust humble leaders more than non-humble alternatives. When we talk about humble leaders, it's those employees really appreciate when they are valued regardless of the position that they hold, but also when they are heard and listened to. It's that kind of two-way street exchange that builds loyalty within an organization. Additionally, HBR found that 50% of workplace conflicts, they can be resolved effectively through respectful and curious dialogue. So don't shy away from asking those hard questions so long as they don't mutate into an indictment or cross-examination. It's a great discussion when it's created with passion and openness to feedback. Let's get back to Chris and hear a little bit more about how he's created this exact type of rapport at Snowflake. You had said in an interview, you love when people come at you. That was the exact quote that I wrote down. And I'm wondering in that thirst, that craving for competition, would you say, again, speaking to what you divulged in your interviews about your upbringing, your childhood on grit, is that symptomatic of the strife, the trauma, the pain that came out of those surprises that now almost to feel a certain degree of intensity, that's what it takes to switch you on? Inevitably, when when you bring passion to a conversation and conviction, but you're open to feedback at the same time, that fosters a really great conversation. So I think it's it's really important to to be be ha- understand what you're talking about. So be a student of what you sell, then bring that that passion and conviction to it, and and then be open to they they might come bring passion and conviction back to you, but in, inevitably what it does is it brings this honesty. I love conflict, not in like conflict in like actually physical altercation, yeah. but, but like really intellectual conflict where you can have honest conversations. And this is a great segue because when we talk about the presence of intellectual conflict being a catalyst for growth and optimization, I want to go back to a different binary discussion. We started this episode talking about, hey, do you love to win or do you hate to lose? I now want us to think about in the history of monolithic tech companies, I'll use Larry Ellison and Oracle as kind of the quintessential example of someone who had no qualms whatsoever in running a highly successful organization, but generally understood to be one run out of a culture of fear. And understanding that fear, this notion of intensity or come at me and let's engage and escalate, like that produces stratospheric success. 
And I'm wondering, perhaps we societally conflate the presence of empathy with that bend or that angle. But I'm wondering if we compare what is the Larry model versus certain things that you find incredibly motivating that like just hatred of losing and even drawing some parallels between what Frank has gone on record saying. Would you say that in, I don't know, ruling with a culture of fear versus managing with a culture of love, there's really now at this point, a track record of ruling out of that degree of intensity, it trumps all, or could we make a counterpoint that says love conquers all, or maybe they're not mutually exclusive. Yeah. So, so look, you, you, you know, when was Oracle founded in like the eighties? Um, mm-hmm. You know, so, you know, kudos to Larry. He, he built, a, you know, an amazing company and, and he did it his way. Um, but, you know, you can't, you, you certainly can decide to manage a company by fear. Um, but that's not, that's not the, that's not the modern way. I don't think that's, you know, like if you were raised in that environment, like if your parents raised you in a, authoritarian environment and they were hardcore on you and whatever, you might decide to raise your children that way. Or you might say there were some good things. There were some rules that actually worked really well, but I'm not going to be, you know, that authoritarian to my, my children. And a classic example and really what an awesome learning moment for me when was when, when I, when Bob Muglia came in and, and he took our, 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 our contract, our customer contract, and he made it from, you know, basically two pages to like eight pages. And I said, Bob, you're killing us. Uh, and I said, you cannot change the contract to eight pages. And I said, you're, you're going to screw us. The sales team's going to quit, blah, 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 blah. And Bob let me rant. And I ranted for like five minutes. He said, are you done? And I said, yes. He said, okay, let me ask you one question. Have you read the contract? And I said, no, I have not read the contract. He goes, so in, in, in a really wonderful teaching moment, um, he said, do me a favor, read the contract, redline the contract, tell me where you're going to have concerns, and then I'll review it with you. And then I may make some changes after that. And, and I'm like, man, that's, that was a really good self, um, kind of self-reflective moment for me of like, I didn't have to come at Bob and yell at him and try to bully my way through, which is a culture that I learned. Yeah. I, I had to come and say, here's what I found to not really work in the contract and have a intellectual conversation to the best of my ability with a really smart human. Um, but, but I think um, Bob's, Bob's to his, to his credit, he used that as a development moment for me. And, and I think that's a really good, you know, way to think about things is, you know, look, however Oracle was made, However, EMC was made, that was, they were made a long time ago. Um, I'm not going to raise the sales team at Snowflake um, the same way that I was raised at EMC or the same way I was raised anywhere else growing up. It's, there are things that I learned that were wonderful um, from my upbringing in enterprise sales at, at EMC that I have applied here at Snowflake, but I haven't taken everything. And I think that's the thing is like, there are things that you'll learn along the way that you're going to say, I'll take some, the good, and I'm going to throw out the bad. And that's kind of my, my perspective on how I think about, um, you know, taking, you know, raising the organization, if you will. When you use the example of two versus eight pages with Bob, trying to decide what are the hills I'm going to die on 
And what am I going to learn to maybe flex and bend on? And there's an amazing story that you tell when you and Benoit are selling early on, it's probably 2014 or 2015, into Goldman. And well before the acceptance of the public cloud, and everyone is still saying, you guys are crazy. You're not going to pander to the private cloud. And here you have the darling of Wall Street saying, guys, we love you, but what's up with the private cloud? And Benoit's conviction to essentially walk from Goldman is borderline, I want to say with all due respect, it's courageous, but almost irreverent given where Snowflake is at in its maturity then. And I use that as an example because as a co-founder to have that degree of persistence, I think has led to historic success for so many other people. And I, I think about that Benoit story and I draw a parallel between the stories that Michael Lewis writes, the story of Billy Bean and being the laughing stock of baseball, but nonetheless, Moneyball being his total, like, I'm going to go down with this ship. And now we think of that as sort of table stakes in the world of sports or even Sam Bankman fried Yes, again, we know the fate of FTX, but nonetheless, in spite of everyone's critique, the persistence, the absolute like unwavering commitment, they're going to die on that hill. And I'm wondering, when are those moments when you do die on the hill with Bob or with Frank? And what are the other times where you're like, nothing is actually worth dying on the hill? It's important for um, founders of, of companies to have kind of pillars of their vision. <clears throat> so Benoit, you know, he came from, from Oracle and, and him and Thierry. And one of the things that they really didn't like about the, the legacy software um, market was that they, they got into this moment where they stopped really innovating on their product. And they were just doing all these bug fixes for versions of Oracle that were four or five years old. And so one of the pillars of, of Snowflake um, when they were building it was that they they only wanted to have one version of Snowflake. So Snowflake's a as a service offering that we manage the up, all the upgrades uh, online. So the so the customer doesn't have you know, dot, 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 dot versions of Snowflake that they're managing on their own. We manage that. And that was, there was all sorts of challenges with that when, when we were growing up. But, but I think that was a fundamental pillar of the, the, of the company that they just were like, we're not doing it. And so when Goldman said to us, look, you know, we want to run your software in our data center. He's like, we're, we're not a software company. We're software as a service and we're not going to let you do that. Um, and, and so even like there were companies that, that a lot of times, um, you negotiate in a, in a contract that if the company goes out of business, that you, you can get their, the source code and escrow, we wouldn't even do that because they're like, there's no way that you could actually do anything with our software. And so I think the, the, the reality is, is that, um, a lot of companies, um, you know, don't have that conviction and you can let. Uh, a large, large enterprise hurts you if you let them. And I think, um, I think you know, that's the the beauty of having mature uh, founders is they they had this vision, they know what was good for the company, they they followed that vision, and there were deviations we made, but they weren't deviations off of the core pillars of what of the company they built. Mm -hmm. And that that's really important is to have conviction around that because. 
salespeople can be pretty convincing. And so, but I went into that meeting already talking to Benoit, knowing that whatever they were going to ask for, we probably weren't going to do because we didn't want them to kill Snowflake. We wanted to build this awesome, you know, data cloud as a service. And that's really what we wanted to do um, or they wanted to do. And I believed in their vision and I trusted them. So I just was there to support them. You came in as employee 16, eventually made your way up to being the CRO. And along the way, well, Bob then joined after you had been there. And then we know that Frank came in after Bob. Have there been moments where with your tribal knowledge and your conviction that you have died on certain hills with Bob or with Frank? Anything that comes to mind? Um, you know, with Frank, what he looks for the non, what he says, the nonverbals, like, how are you going to, um, how is your body reacting? You know, cause I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a good liar. So he tries to look in the, the depths of my soul and, and figure out if I have conviction around it. I think, you know, one of the things that was really scary for me, um, I had conviction around going to Japan, um, launching Snowflake in Japan and, and for a software company to launch in Japan, it's, it's expensive. Uh, you, you have, you have to have all your documentation, you know, like something's something like 90% of the country does not speak English. So you, they don't use LinkedIn. So there's all sorts of things that you have to think about on launching that market. I was really pushing in. And, and so he looked at me and said, I had a consultant and he didn't want the consultant talking. He wanted me and he wanted me to have conviction. So I would say that like, that is an example of having a conviction. And, and, you know, four years later, you know, we've launched Japan. It's worked out quite well for us. It's a wonderful performing country for us, but it, it took a little guts. And I was scared because look, I was still in this six, within six months of Frank joining, going into my one-on-ones with him, not sure if I was going to have a job after each and every one-on-one, you know, you're, you're on pins and needles when you, when you go and you put yourself out there saying, we're going to go do this. And I'm super Super glad we did. Yeah. Super proud of the team we have over there. But yeah, there's there's all sorts of things like that 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 I've I've had throughout the times, and and I think um, you know there's there's been pivotal moments of you know we have large customers that have asked us to do things even with Bob where Bob was initially resistant to that that eventually he he agreed that these were right things to do. So there's, there's a, there's a history of yes. And if, if I think a lot of times what leaders look for is, you know, do you have passion and conviction or are you just asking, should we do this? Do you have ownership or, or are you trying to manage up? And what, you know, I've learned is if I don't have passion and conviction or the people below me don't have passion and conviction, like I'm not doing that. But if you have passion and conviction, bring it, Bring the passion, bring the conviction, bring the data. And yeah, sure, I can get behind it if you have it. And that's a that's something that I've really learned, you know, in working for Frank is I, I can't I can't own everything. But if people, uh, you know, bring it and say this is going to be meaningful to us, then I can get behind it. So. You've described even in this recording, but previously talking about those first six months under Frank being perhaps the most anxiety provoking written chapter in your whole career. In contrast, Bob had cried in front of you. You describe him as a father. So when you have nothing left to prove, and here you are subjecting yourself to anxiety, was there ever any temptation when Bob left, be like, well, if he goes, I go? Was it ever a package deal? 
did you feel any inclination to just say, well, if he's not here, my- I, I, you have to understand, I love Snowflake and, yeah. and I feel this passion behind the company. And I still, to this day, care about Snowflake. And the way that, that I view it is I, even when Bob left, I cared for the people. I cared for the company. We've, we had, I knew we had something special. As we'll think back historically on Snowflake, I don't believe it's hyperbole to talk about what you did early on as revolutionary, revolutionary in terms of the technology, also revolutionary in terms of the licensing model and pivoting away from per seat or perpetual licensing to consumption and charging as a utility. We had seen, you know, the public cloud starting to do, but it had not taken such hold as we now presumably just sort of take it for granted. Walk us through those early stages. I mean, you even in an interview talked about, man, like I really bongled the initial pricing and licensing, but how did you even early on evangelize that? Did you run into headwinds where people skeptical of it? Tell us a little bit more about that. I'd say that people still try to get us to change the pricing model yeah. 10 years in. I think Bob, to his credit, like this is this is Bob and, and he invented our pricing and it's still... There's there's tweaks we've made along the way, um, but but it's a good lesson in general if you're building a company is if your underlying cost of goods is a variable cost of goods, aka the cloud providers, you cannot have a fixed model. As much as you want to have a fixed model, if you have a fixed model, your largest customers will be your worst margin performing, you'll probably be underwater with your largest customers. There are set software as a service companies that have done that. They, their CEOs do not have the, the guts or the brains or both to go out and create a consumption model because their underlying co- cost is, is variable. So if you, if you have a, that, and that's what I learned from Bob is if you have a, you, it's very difficult to do that. And you, especially as you get into the large enterprise, they come and say, well, what if we give you an all, all you can eat? You know, we just want to, as much as we can, Bob would be like, no way, because that you're, you, you'll kill us. And, yeah. and so, um, you know, but, but the thing that was hard is we were replacing thing like competitors that had on-premise systems with fixed amount of CPUs, those fixed amount of CPUs and storage cost a certain amount of money. And, and if they needed to get more, they would just go out and do a, a, a capital purchase and, and buy and buy more. And, and with Snowflake, the, the beauty of Snowflake is when you're not using it, you're not paying for it. When you're using it, you are. And so you have to get used to it. So the hardest part for us, especially early on, was going into a customer who had a fixed resource and saying, hey, you're going to be bu- buying a variable resource. And like, how do we size it? And really early on, we had to require a proof of concept 100% of the time to basically extrapolate, okay, this is how you're going to use it. And the easiest analogy I always give is if you're going to sell your your grandma a cell phone and say, grandma, you know, hey, you know, we're going to, I'm going to give you this phone, try the phone. We'll see how much, how many minutes you talk every month. Um, and if you're talking, you know, hundred minutes a month, you can pay $2 a minute if you pay on demand. Um, or if I pre-sell you a, a year's worth of m- minutes, which is 1,200 minutes, I'll sell you that at a discount. And, and that's kind of, that's the model and that's how we've done it. But I think that 
the proof of concept, especially early on, was pretty critical um, for us to to showcase, you know, how we were using it. And, and then people started to realize, oh gosh, I'm I'm saving sixty percent on on the on premise systems that I that I had before. So thinking about what again, I'll use the word one more time, revolutionary at a time when that was not commonplace, for you to even think about what you would do beyond Snowflake. Not that, again, I have a crystal ball or I'm projecting out to the world that you're leaving, but would it have to be something as, I don't know, like just boundary pushing to get you to stay as switched on? Or at this point, from everything you've gleaned, the scars you've accumulated, is there an appeal to wine to do consulting, which is, you know, a nice way to coast into the twilight of a otherwise just unquestionably illustrious career? Or do you, if you're going to be in the saddle, it's got to be 8,500 RPMs bordering on redlining. It's a, it's a, it's a really, it's a good question. You know, look, my a hundred percent of my mental game is, is associated to snowflake right now. Um, And people call me about all sorts of jobs that you would think, you know, the, the, the coolest companies out there, whatever. And, and I'm, I'm uninterested. I'm, I just, yeah. my, my, again, my love for Snowflake is real. And, and it's like, I didn't make the product, but I helped the company grow up. And, mm-hmm. and I have a lot of passion and conviction behind, behind that. I, it, it's hard to go out and build relationships um, in organizations that, you know, I, I can only imagine having to go and build relationships with a whole nother set of founders or, you know, CEO or whomever it's, that's, that's tiring. And, and I think, um, on the flip side, I've done advisory work, I've done board work and the challenge I have with that, which, which I'm currently not doing either. Um, because when you tell someone to do something, in the role I have now, they actually do it. When you tell someone to do that and, and they don't do it and they're paying you a lot of money to be a consultant, a, 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 you know, an advisor, a board member, and they don't do it, you're like, well, why the hell am I here? And so I think, uh, you know, I, it's an interesting thing to think about. Uh, I'm, I'm 49 years old. I, you know, I, I still enjoy the, the, the work I do. I find um, Snowflake, where we're going as a company, extremely exciting. I think we we have the opportunity to to be the next great tech company, not just a, a great IPO, but there's a long life ahead of Snowflake. So my my mental capacity is really focused on making sure Snowflake's set up for success um, in the future. And then when the time comes and um, you know they don't want me anymore, I'll, I'll maybe I'll take some time off and evaluate it. And you know. It's hard to say whether I'd go back to operating or not. It, right now, I'd say no, but you never say no. Um, it was what I learned. So. Two more questions, and then we'll wrap. Well, you're a Boston boy. Sports were huge growing up. Larry Bird or Magic Johnson? Different style players, totally different personalities and affects. Well, can we put to rest the debate who was better? And then B, would you say that in evolving into the leader you've become, are there elements that you find are more representative or reflective of Larry's style? Or are you finding opportunities to start putting on a little showmanship and sort of out of the people's champ and magic? You are unquestionably, irrefutably a celebrity now 
in the world of tech execs. I'm wondering, both in terms of athleticism and leadership principles, tell us a little bit about where you take inspiration. Well, yeah, I, I wouldn't say I'm the best salesperson out there. There's a, I've met a lot of much better salespeople, and I think uh, Magic Johnson was a better athlete uh, for sure. And uh, I, I'd say that uh, you know I respect the heck out of the the Lakers, you know, team and Magic Johnson was awesome, awesome, awesome to watch. Um, obviously I, I like Larry Bird was my idol growing up. Yeah. So, um, and, and I would say that, you know, I wasn't a poor kid from French like Indiana, but, but, but I, I think, uh, um, I respect the, the work ethic that, that Larry brought. I also respected the, the smack talking that he brought. Um, and you know, they say he's one of the best smart smack talkers out there. So, Look, I admire both um, of them. Um, I'm a passionate Celtics fan to this day. Um, I will always, from a from a competitive standpoint, hate the Lakers, but respect them. And I think what what I what I'll say about competition is, I think competition is great. I think it's great for customers. Um, I think uh, it makes you better. puts It puts you in a in a in a in kind of it centers you. Um, and I like having people. That are that are wanting to kill Snowflake. Um, I think where I where I draw the line um, is around ethics. When when people aren't ethical in their in their com- their competitive ways, I don't like that. And so, um, you know, bring it bring it at me all day. Um, I'm gonna grind. I'm gonna be the the, the Larry Bird, if you will, of of, of enterprise software. Um, I wish I had the the natural ability of of uh, Magic Johnson. But I do not. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, that's 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 what I'd say. All righty. Well, we'll wrap with the last question, Chris, that we ask every single one of our guests that come through the Gong Studios, and it's this: If you could describe sales in just one word, what would it be? Grind. The the thing that 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 I tell people when they come to Snowflake, like. I was talking to one of our sales leaders over in um, Switzerland and he's worked at, you know, hardcore sales organizations before, and he's worked at good technology companies before. And, and I think he's, he, he took a perspective of from the outside looking in snowflake looked like this kind of, I'm just going to show up and it was going to be easy. Um, but you have to understand is like, we're competing in a space where, like these are 10, 15 year workloads that we're winning at Snowflake and, and it's hard. And if you don't go on, you know, a certain number of sales calls a week, if you don't know the product and you don't know how to compete, you'll lose and you're not going to make money and you'll get fired. And that's, that's here at Snowflake. And so I think like the, the thing that, that I tell people in new hire class, when, when I get in front of new hires are some of you will be successful and some of you won't that are in this class today. And the, it's on you. If, if you take the time and effort to learn the product, if you take the time and effort to go on, um, you know, every week go on a large number of sales calls. Do you think I, you know, sit there and like traveling to Europe five times this year, going to, going to Asia a whole bunch? No, I do not. I do it because that is required for me to be successful in this job. And, and I think, I think that's the thing that I'd say is there's an element of grind on, you know, you don't have to be that I don't consider myself the smartest salesperson. I don't consider myself the, 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 like I said, the, the magic Johnson of, of sales. 
no, man, it's like you have to get out there and you have to go and show and prove and do all those things that that basically show that you know what you're talking about and get your at-bats or get in front of as many customers as possible because we do have a good product. So if you do all those things, you'll be successful. And if you don't, that's on you. I just so appreciate you taking a step back because from the outside looking at Snowflake, you've made it to the promised land, Chris. Oh my God, you're in the Garden of Eden. And yet from the time you arrived, you setting quotas, there needed to be 2,000 prospecting emails per week, not sexy stuff, all the way to a decade later, the CRO of the software company with the largest IPO in software history. And there are still things that are not glamorous, but comes with the job and there's no shortcuts. So from end to end, from start to where you stand today, your consistency in vigilantly committing to the discipline of putting your head down and grinding with that grit is commendable to say the least. So Chris, thanks for all of your level of humility, your honesty, and your counsel and wisdom that you've shared with the nearly 33,000 unique monthly listeners of Reveal. I know I'm taking a lot away. I can speak for our entire audience as well, that they'll relish in the chance to hear what you have to say. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Chris Degnan, the Chief Revenue Officer of Snowflake. Chris, thanks so much for being here. Danny, thanks for having me. Pleasure talking. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Reveal. If you want more resources on how revenue intelligence can help you create high-performing sales teams, then head on over to gong.io. And along the way, if you like what you heard, come on, give us that five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you may listen.